0: I'd like to talk tonight about what we're trying to do here and how we can go about doing it. Some of you may have asked yourself that question today. Uh, what am I doing here? Um, if it's your first day, maybe even if it's your ninth day. Maybe if it's your first retreat, maybe if it's your ninth retreat. Now, what are we doing here? It isn't easy to do this practice. Most of you um, probably know that by now. So why are we bothering? Not everybody's answer to that question is going to be the same, but the goal of relation practice is happiness and peace and ultimately to free ourselves of all suffering. And the way to this goal is to see and understand how this universe operates, what are the laws of reality. And in that way, we discover what makes us suffer and what frees us from suffering and brings us happiness. It sounds like a bit of a tall order, but the beauty of the Buddha's teachings is that he actually gave us a map of how to do this a map of a path that leads to peace and happiness. So how does this map go? There are several areas that are emphasized. One area is integrity or how we live in this world. The importance of having a foundation of the intention not to create harm and suffering. So Michelle talked a bit about this last night, about grounding ourselves in the precepts and an attitude of non-harming. Another part of the path that is emphasized is understanding, understanding deeply how this universe works. And a third area of emphasis is mind development. Developing our minds in such a way that we can see clearly what's happening so that we can understand how this world operates, how this mind-body process operates. Developing our minds so that we are able to observe our experience, observe this mind-body process, investigate and learn from our investigation. The obvious problem, however, is that if we say, sit down and watch your mind and body, we get scattered and lost in thought. We need some kind of system. So meditation is that system of how to investigate this mind and body. In this process of meditation, we use ourselves as guinea pigs. And this is a lab. And what we're doing is investigating what happens in this mind-body process. And we start with the breath, which we've been doing today, and then we move on to um, the totality of our experience. And we make a careful investigation into what's happening. There are two qualities that are very important in this investigation and Michelle just touched on those last night, and I'm gonna talk about them in more detail. Those qualities are concentration and mindfulness. Concentration is a very important quality of mind in meditation. It's one step of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's mentioned often uh, whenever we talk about mind development Basically, concentration is about focusing the mind and getting here. Most of you know that we spend a good time, a good part of our time lost in distractions and thought. And what we, with concentration, what we do is we develop a sense of being here, full-heartedly here. It's simple, but it's not so easy, as you've probably figured out. Our minds can be pretty turbulent lots of thoughts and plans and reactions and likes and dislikes. A quote by Trungpa Rinpoche, the epitome of the human realm is to be stuck in a huge traffic jam of discursive thought. (laughs) It feels that way sometimes. (laughs) Or Bhante Gunaratama even puts it a little bit more um, directly. He says... Somewhere in this process, you will come face-to-face with a sudden and shocking realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking, gibbering madhouse on wheels, (laughs) barreling pell-mell down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. (laughs) You are not crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you just never noticed. You are also no crazier than anybody else around you. The real difference is that you have confronted the situation. They have not. So they still feel relatively comfortable. That does not mean that they are better off. Ignorance may be bliss, but it does not lead to liberation. So don't let this realization unsettle you. It is a milestone, actually, a sign of progress. The very fact that you have looked the problem straight in the eye means that you are on your way up and out of it. So we need to get here, get home, arrive. It's a big part of practice, especially um, the first days of a retreat. And ongoing, it's still a big part of practice. In this process of um, developing concentration, we use the breath as an anchor, as a place to focus. And we come back again and again to the sensations of breathing. You can use anything as an anchor. Some people find the breath, for various reasons, doesn't work, and they may anchor in some other part of the body or in sound. It's just important to have some anchor to come back to in order to develop concentration. So we start with the breath, and then as time goes on, we'll be adding um, other experiences that happen in a systematic way until eventually we include all of our um, experience in the field of our awareness. We also usually choose one place to anchor the attention, one place to keep the breath, usually either the nostrils, chest, or abdomen. And that helps train the mind. The mind is a bit like... um, a wild horse. Let's say you're trying to train the horse to go back to the corral and you move the corral around. Well, the horse is gonna have a hard time getting trained. It's gonna get confused. Our minds are kind of the same. We wanna keep one place that we keep going back to and then uh, the mind gets trained faster. Concentration takes a certain amount of effort. It's active, but it can't be forced. It just develops naturally from bringing our attention back each time that we're lost. One mistake we often make is to think that we can control whether we go off into thought. I thought this a lot in my early practice, and I suffered because of it. Um, I finally discovered we can't. I remember I went into an interview with Sharon Salzberg in my first long retreat, and I was kind of complaining about how much my mind was wandering and, and pretty upset about it. And uh, I must have said something that made her think I thought I could control it. (laughs) And she says, you know, you can't control if your mind goes off into thought. The only time you have any control, so to speak, is at the moment that you know you're lost, you can decide whether you're going to indulge in the thought or go back to the breath. That's the only task you have is that when you're lost, you realize you're lost that moment you wake up to go back to the breath. And I was like, oh, well, I can do that. I clearly had realized I could not control whether I went off into thought, and I was pretty upset about that. But when he said, all you have to do is just go back when you're lost, you know, make that commitment, I thought, it's doable. And it was a great relief to me. If you want to help the process along of concentration, you can play with making a commitment that each time you find you're lost in thought, each time that you wake up, make a commitment to go back to the breath. Make a commitment not to voluntarily follow a thought. That will help increase your concentration. Um, some people find it a little scary to to make that commitment, but you can play with it for a sitting or two or the whole retreat. So anyway, don't get discouraged if you find that um, The concentration takes time to build. It does take practice. We spent many years letting this wild horse of our minds run around and do what it wants. It's going to take a while to train it. And if you find yourself lost in thought a lot, don't assume that that means that you should quit and never return. (laughs) I like to tell uh, a story Joseph tells about his early practice. He said, you know, he would sit down, he would think, and the bell would ring. So, <laughs> if, you, if you find yourself in a similar situation, that doesn't mean that, that it's hopeless. <laughs> I remember the first time I meditated, um, I was 23 and I was living in Nicaragua at the time and a friend of mine had told me about uh, Buddhism and had given me a couple books and I'd read these books and I was just like, wow, this is, this is, this is it. This is how the world is. I was really um, excited by what I read and so I took one of these books. There wasn't a teacher down there, so I took one of these books and uh, read the instructions and sat down to meditate. Got myself in a nice chair and all ready. And um, after five minutes, I quit. <laughs> I said, Nobody can do this. My mind was so busy that um, it just looked rather hopeless. Then I signed up for the three month course. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> uh, but what I did realize, I think somewhere I must have known, that, that to develop concentration I was going to need an environment that encouraged com- concentration. And um, you know I was going to need some discipline. That must have been why I um, gave up and waited till I went to a retreat to try to meditate again. Um, and what I did learn w- from that was that under proper conditions, concentration does grow. It just works that way. Um, and, we try here to give the most proper conditions in order to help um, concentration grow. But it's fickle. Concentration is fickle. You might notice that one sitting, it seems like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere, and, you know, mine's mind's down a little bit, and then uh, the next sitting, it's all over again. It's all over the place. Um, this is normal. This is This happens. If you really want to see how fickle concentration is, try making a phone call home after a few days. Um, you'll be amazed at what it does to your concentration. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> or write notes to somebody on retreat. That'll that'll um, disturb your concentration. You'll spend the next sitting thinking about the note that you wrote or the one you received. Concentration does best with um, maintaining silence and um, a, a limited distractions. I remember um, on my first three-month course, at one point I had to go to the doctor in town for something, and um, I had had a lot of distractions, and there, there was a radio on in the um, waiting room, and I had to listen to two songs, and I still remember what they are. <laughs> and for the next week when I was back here, these songs played endlessly in my mind. <laughs> it was um, horrible. I won't tell you the titles because... You might wind up thinking about them for the next week, <laughs> but they weren 't songs I wanted in my mind <laughs> so so concentration 's fickle um, you know if you if you get a lot of distraction it 'll come in and um, it will make your mind uh, busier, so um, we limit distractions for that reason so uh, concentration feels good it um, develops. Uh, a calm and tranquil mind. And uh, a still mind is, is quite pleasant, um, you know. We're usually so busy filling our minds, but with um, concentration we're, we're letting go. We're not filling, we're emptying our minds. It's nice. It also gives us a, a fighting chance to see what's going on, uh, you know, a fighting chance to investigate um, our mind-body process. So some kinds of meditations stop with concentration. um, That's the goal is to develop a mind that's focused and to um, have that tranquility. Like mantra meditations, for example, that's that's the goal. But with mindfulness practice, um, we want to go further. And we want to include this quality of mindfulness and they work together, the concentration and mindfulness, to help us in this investigation of ourselves and of reality, this investigation that leads to happiness and to peace. So concentration gets us focused, and then mindfulness pays attention when we get here. Sometimes I like to say concentration gets us to the park, and mindfulness smells the roses. It's, um, they work together. You need both. So mindfulness is about, when we get here, paying attention to what's happening. And mindfulness is a deep kind of awareness. It's not an awareness on the surface of what's happening, but we actually try to plunge into our experience and really see it deeply. So we're not satisfied with the thought of breath, but we actually want to see what is a breath, you know? What are the sensations of breathing? you know, beyond our ideas of what the breath might be, what's really happening? You know, is it, is it um, stretching, relaxing, tickling, warmth, coolness? You know, what is happening as we breathe? Trying to get down to what we call bare attention. Bare attention is this awareness of our experience before adding all our ideas on top of our experience. Another example might be a knee pain. We would have an idea what a knee pain is. Okay, you know, my knee aches. but And that's kind of a conceptual, superficial awareness. But with mindfulness practice, we would go into our knee and, you know, what is really happening there? You know, what sensations? Is it burning or is it stabbing or is it um, pulling or is it aching? And is it staying the same or is it changing? Is it getting stronger? Is it moving? You know, really um, a very deep investigation of what's happening. Or, for example, walking meditation. When we first start doing walking meditation, we might be thinking okay, now I'm lifting my leg, and my leg's moving, and the muscles stretching, and now the bottom of my foot's touching the um, sidewalk, and I can feel some pressure. But as our mindfulness builds, we start letting go of the idea of leg and foot and ground. And we just start to perceive the sensations. And okay, so there's heaviness and there's movement and then there's pressure, maybe coolness. And just connecting with, um, again, the bare experience below our ideas of, or before our ideas of what's happening. So mindfulness, um, we often talk about beginner's mind, having this mind that's fresh, um, that's unclouded by knowing, this mind that uh, comes to our experience each time new. A number of years ago, I had a chance to go to the Monet exhibit that was in Boston, um, and there was this exhibit of the years and years and years that um, Monet spent um, painting the same lilies and the same pond. And it was amazing to watch the progression of his mindfulness because that's what it was. You know, the first uh, lilies look like lilies, like ideas of lilies. And then over like 20 years, it's like each time he painted the lilies, it was more a bare experience, unclouded by concepts. And you know, more just about light and color and form. And you could tell that each year, he was letting go more of the concept of lily and actually getting in touch with the, the very experience of of the lilies. It's, a, it's like he was seeing it new and newer and newer and newer as the years went on. The other day on Friday, yesterday, that was um, when I had an afternoon off. I was uh, sitting in a canoe in the pond. And um, I like to watch birds. And uh, there was this grackle, which is—I don't know if you know what grackles, but they're just kind of blackbirds. And you kind of look at them, and you go, "Oh, that's a blackbird." So that was my first reaction. Oh, that's a blackbird. And then I thought, I'm gonna look at this bird a little more closely. And I looked at it, and it was just astoundingly beautiful. It had this blue head and this gold eye, and um, iridescent colors on its body, and This is an example of with mindfulness. Mindfulness is like seeing all those colors and seeing the grackle fresh. But what we usually do is we see the concept. We see the concept of the grackle, and we go, oh, that's just a grackle. And we don't go any further. We don't look any further. But with mindfulness, it's about not just staying on that surface, oh, it's another breath, <laughs> but actually going and experiencing each breath anew, um, each experience anew, to. Um, uh, see it with fresh eyes. This whole process of mindfulness and of being aware is really about waking up to life and experiencing all of our life with fresh eyes. From the Dhammapada, there's a a quote here says, wakefulness is the way to life. The fool sleeps as if he were already dead, but the master is awake and he lives forever. She watches. She is clear. How happy she is, for she sees that wakefulness is life. How happy he is following the path of the awakened. With great perseverance, he meditates, seeking freedom and happiness. So wakefulness is the way to life. Mindfulness, like concentration, is a receptive type of energy. You can't force it. It's really um, also just about beginning again and again. And it develops naturally from our interest and from being with our experience. We sit here and we do our best to pay attention. And then life reveals itself to us. Just the other day, I came across a quote by the author Franz Kafka, which I thought was um, very appropriate. He said, you do not need to leave your room. Remain sitting at your table and listen. Do not even listen, simply wait. Do not even wait, be quite still and ordinary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. So that's what we're doing here. We're being still and quite ordinary. One thing that sometimes happens in our mindfulness practice is we think that um, we're missing too many moments of mindfulness. (laughs) We'll berate ourselves, we'll be lost in thought, and then we'll come back and we'll go, Oh, God, I was gone so long. I'm a terrible yogi. And um, it gets quite discouraging (laughs) with that attitude. But the great thing about mindfulness is the very noticing that you've been lost has just reestablished mindfulness. Now the very moment that you wake up and you go, oh, I've been thinking. In that moment, you are you're here, you're mindful. So um, the next time you're giving yourself grief for not being here, maybe you can just try to realize that at that very moment that you wake up, that you can just celebrate that yes, I'm here. Count the um, the good times. <laughs> So we've, we, we talk a lot here about awareness. Um, so what do we become aware of? What is our experience? I remember um, when I was a young teenager, probably about 14, 13, 14, 15, my family used to go camping in, um, at this land that a friend of my dad's owned. And I come from a family of eight children, and we are allowed to each bring a friend. So we usually wind up, uh, with a van full of 14 or 15 kids and my dad, and we'd go up to this um, land and go camping. we have a girls' campsite and a boys' campsite and a little kids' campsite with Dad. And um, I remember I loved these camping trips, but what I loved most, uh, which I started to do again in my teens, is I started to go off in the afternoon. I would go off to this meadow that was kind of away, a little ways, and I would... Um, well, I called it finding myself, <laughs> I would uh, sit down and um, try to be there. And I kind of figured out on my own that being there meant connecting with the senses, you know, hearing, smelling, seeing, feeling. Um, and I kind of figured out that if, that if I was lost in thought that I, that I kind of missed the boat and that if I noticed I was lost in thought that I would come back to being with my senses. And um, if I managed to do that a lot in an afternoon, I would feel kind of good and like I had found myself. In some ways, I was informally practicing Vipassana meditation without knowing it, um, and basically had figured out what we pay attention to in Vipassana meditation. It really boils down to the five senses, the body, you know, hearing, smelling, seeing, tasting, and and perceiving, feeling with the body, and the mind, consciousness, mental factors, mind states. That's about it. The Buddha said that's all there is. There's a sutra on totality. He says, Monks, I will teach you the totality of life. Listen, attend carefully to it, and I will speak. What, monks, is totality? It is just the eye with the objects of sight, the ear with the objects of hearing, the nose with the objects of smell, the body with the objects of touch, and the mind with the objects of cognition. This, monks, is called totality. Now if anyone were to say, aside from this explanation of totality, I will preach another totality, that person would be speaking empty words and being questioned would not be able to answer. Why is this? Because that person is talking about something outside of possible knowledge. There's a there's a a, a story of a of a man named Bahia, or Bahia, um at the time of the Buddha, and he. Um, one time was approaching the Buddha as the Buddha was walking off to do something, and he comes running up to him. He was kind of an eager and impatient man, and he runs up to him. He's like, no, "Give me teachings! Give me teachings!" And the Buddha's like, "You know, hey, right now I'm a little busy. Uh, can't can't do it right now." And he's like, "No, no, you have to teach me now. I can't wait. I gotta, you know, I gotta know the teachings right now." And the Buddha's like, "Look, you know." of off to go do something (laughs) and then he asks him again he says like oh no you know if we if i wait and the buddha says you know well you can come later and i'll teach you later he's like no i might die before you see see you and then i won't get the teachings and so since he asked three times the buddha had to um the the tradition was that the buddha had to teach him so i think the buddha must thought well how can i summarize this as quick as as short as possible since i don't have much time here and it said that this is what he said to bahia he said then by yet, thus must you train yourself. In the seen, there will be just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the imagined, just the imagined. So it's just, you know, there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, and the imagined, the mind. So that's what we—that's what we're going to be doing here. We're going to be looking at the totality of our experience, and um, as I said, we'll be giving detailed instructions about how you work with each, which each one of these experiences. And you know, we've already started with the breath, and some with hearing and thinking. So there's several parts of mindfulness that I'd like to mention. Um, first part of mindfulness is recognition. We want to know what is happening. And the mental noting that we do sometimes can help with that. So the mental noting in-out, you know, an in-breath is happening, an out-breath is happening. Or the mental noting um, hearing, you know, hearing's happening. So the noting can help us just, you know, recognize what's happening. That's one part of mindfulness. Another part of mindfulness that can be very challenging is acceptance. We want to accept what is happening without judgment. You know, whatever is happening is okay. We just, what's important is being aware. It's not so important what we're aware of, but what's important is the quality of our awareness. You know, usually we spend kind of every moment, is this moment okay, is that moment okay? You know, what would I like different about this one? Um, Mindfulness is really about a radical surrender to what is. It takes time to get used to this attitude. I remember uh, one period I went through on practice where I realized that I was judging every breath to decide if it was okay. <laughs> Not just every sitting, every breath, you know. It's just uh, deeply ingrained in us, you know, to want to judge um, our experience. And I think we live in a society where it's deeply ingrained to um, be competitive and and, uh, ambitious and and, um, use our will a lot. Mindfulness is not about will. It's about just being with what's happening and accepting it. Another part of mindfulness is what we call non-identification or um, non-clinging, and this part's a little bit more difficult to understand. It's it's really about seeing that... um, that this experience that arises and passes away um, within us is not some solid me or I. So we start to realize that, you know, what happens, what happens in our experience just arises out of conditions and passes away when those conditions um, end. And so we start to see that it's just things arising, things uh, disappearing, experiences arising, experiences ending. And we start to... um, Learn not to um, clutch on to all this experience and say, oh, this is me, this is mine. You'll notice that when we do the noting, we don't say, I am hearing. We just say hearing. It's acknowledging that hearing is an experience that has arisen and, um, and not adding this idea that, oh, it's I, it's me that's hearing. It's about watching the passing show. It's quite a show that we watch. And as mindfulness gets more powerful, this happens more easily. But it takes time also to understand this concept of non-identification or not um, clinging to this idea of self and um, and that all this experience is, is me or mine. So you can just let that one rest. You don't have to understand it completely right now. Another part of mindfulness is interest. So with mindfulness, we become deeply interested in our experience. All of it, the happiness and the sorrow, it's very inclusive. So what is a breath? What is a back pain? What is joy? What is fear? We accept whatever comes and become interested in all of it and all of our life. A word of caution, however, though, we don't go out looking for it. It's really um, important that we stay anchored in our primary object. And then what happens is when other experiences call us strongly, we we investigate them. But if we go out, you know, kind of looking around and trying to find a lot of experience to attend to, then we just get scattered and lose our concentration. So again, we stay anchored in our breath or whatever is our primary object. And then when other things strongly call, when that pain, of knee, in, that pain in the knee strongly calls our attention, then we give, it, we give it attention and we investigate it and then we go back to our knee. And like I said, we'll be giving more detailed instructions about those things. And a great thing about mindfulness is that it's available all the time, not just when we're here sitting in the hall. We can be mindful of, um, of anything and everything that's happening. So, you know, we have the formal periods of sitting and walking meditation, but we can be mindful of brushing our teeth. We can be mindful of washing our face. We can be mindful of eating. You know, basically it's about coming back to our sense experience, coming back to what's happening um, through our senses. One of the first books I read when I was meditating was um, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness, and he talks about washing dishes in a way that I always found kind of delightful. It's about mindfulness at any time. He says, while washing the dishes, one should only be washing the dishes, which means that while washing the dishes, one should be completely aware of the fact that one is washing the dishes. Now this could apply to anything, could apply to brushing your teeth or combing your hair. At first glance this might seem a little silly why put so much stress on a simple thing, but that's precisely the point. The fact that I'm standing there and washing these bowls is a wondrous reality. I'm being completely myself, following my breath, conscious of my presence, and conscious of my thoughts and actions. There's no way I can be tossed around mindlessly like a bottle slapped here and there on the waves. So we have so many chances in our day to experience this wondrous reality by being mindful of, um, of whatever we're doing. I'd like to talk a few minutes about things that support Mindfulness. Um, one thing is uh, when we 've talked uh, we talk about this in all retreats is slowing down a little bit, you know um maybe walking a little slower and connecting with um our bodies as we move around. I think the kind of amazing thing that we realize at a certain point on retreat is that there's um there 's nowhere to go and nothing to do. <laughs> You know, we're so. It takes a while for that to sink in. You know, when I first was on retreat, I kind of thought I had a lot to do, and I and that the faster I did it, somehow the more successful I was going to be at meditating because I'd have, you know, gotten more done. <laughs> Which is how we're pretty highly conditioned to think about life. But the amazing. I mean, when we when we get it, it's such an amazing thing. You know, there's nothing to do here except. Be with your experience, you know. It's nowhere to go. <laughs> Even when we do walking meditation we just walk back and forth. <laughs> so, uh, see if you can let that one sink in. It's really, um, it's a mind shift. And it's a wondrous mind shift because um, it's so spacious. You know, you can give yourself that gift of spaciousness this week knowing you don't have to go anywhere or do anything. Just be with your experience. I do recommend you show up for the sittings, however. (laughs) A mindful environment also helps mindfulness. It's amazing to me that when I come to IMS and I walk through the door, I immediately sink into my body. It's like I'm so conditioned from this place, you know, so many moments of mindfulness that I've spent here that... um, it's just automatic, and also so many moments of mindfulness that so many other people have spent here. You know, we've really created a mindful energy field, a mindful environment, and we're um, very influenced by that. Uh, and, you know, mindful environment also includes being silent, that helps a lot, and limiting distractions. That's why we don't recommend reading and writing and, um, and getting mail, it's uh, to create this simplicity that creates a mindful environment, you know and limited distractions that I mentioned that 's why we don 't show movies in the evening in the meditational it 's about you know limiting distractions so that we have a mindful environment. The Buddha also whenever he talked about qualities that he wanted us to develop, he recommended um, that we hang out with other people who are um, either have those qualities or want to have them so Um, the Buddha recommended that we have mindful friends. And so all of you here have about 99 other mindful friends uh, helping you to create this mindful environment. It's, um, It's a gift that we give to each other, that we're supporting each other. And you'll notice that if you go outside and a lot of people are doing walking meditation that it will be easier for you to do walking meditation. And when you come in the hall and it's full of other people, you know, that that support of your mindful friends here um, helps, helps create mindfulness for you. Um, and and other co- uh, things that help mindfulness, metta and compassion, the qualities of metta and compassion help our mindfulness a lot. Um, how we relate to our ourselves and our experience. And um, Really helps uh, if we relate to our experience with metta and compassion, it really helps to facilitate um, openness. When we're kind and caring towards ourselves and our experience towards what comes up, um, it nourishes this container of um, safety for yourself and makes the mind um, more pliable and um, more uh, receptive. So having um, these qualities of metta and compassion, and if you don't know much about them, we are going to actually do sittings where we, you know, some people have been practicing them for a week, and for those who are new, we'll, we'll actually be introducing them at 4 o'clock, the 4 o'clock sittings. But having this, this feeling of loving kindness towards ourselves and compassion towards ourselves um, helps give us the courage to face what comes up and to be with our experience fully. So try to remember to apply your mindfulness with with a quality of kind kindness and care. You'll forget, but try to remember. <laughs> Another thing that I think is so important um, with our mindfulness practice is to, ha- is to try to maintain some sense of humor. Um, you're going to have a hard time making it through if you can't laugh a little bit at at what comes up in your mind. <laughs> you know, like I mentioned in that quote, our minds can get, it can seem pretty crazy sometimes. I don't think there's anybody in this room who would even let us hear five minutes of their last meditation. You know, at the mind, <laughs> the mind is um, often a- acts on the level of about a three year old. It's, um, I want this and I want it now, and no. You know, and that's a lot about what goes on, you know, as we meditate. (laughs) Mm. And we have to be able to laugh at that, or at least, you know, hold it lightly. As Joseph said, the mind has no shame. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. It's pretty absurd, really. So can can we just hold that with a little lightness? Another thing that helps um, mindfulness is um, repetition and practice. Uh, So, you know, remembering. Um, The the Pali word for mindfulness, sati, has connotations of the word remembering. And the thing about remembering is the more we remember, the more we remember to remember. So, um, you know, we come in here and we practice remembering, coming back, and being aware. And it becomes a habit that we develop. So this repetition and, you know, practice, that's why we call it practice. We re- you know, it's doing it over and over again. Um, it really supports our mindfulness. Lastly, an attitude of surrender really helps our mindfulness practice. At some point we become aware that we're not really in control here. <laughs> and... Uh, if we really accept that, then we can surrender to our experience exactly as it is. So letting go of wanting and hoping and expectations and judgments. Letting go of the idea of what we think should be happening and what we want to happen and what we are planning on having happen and what seems to be happening to everybody else but us. Um, you know, letting go of these ideas that we have. Surrendering to our practice. Now I think the number one way that I see people suffer um, when I have interviews with them is through expectation about what should be happening in their practice and isn't. So, uh, you know, look out for that one. See if you can uh, just notice it and not get too um, caught up in it. You know, seeing if you can just accept, um, accept things exactly as they are. So I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about um, some of the blessings of mindfulness. Mindfulness is just this absolutely precious and wonderful tool that we are so lucky to have in this world. One blessing of mindfulness is that we actually get to live our lives. (laughs) Without mindfulness, you know that we often um, miss huge chunks. (laughs) You know how often you might take a walk in the woods and you even want to be there, and um, our minds, you know, wander and we kind of miss the walk. But as we practice mindfulness, we start actually being able to be here for more of our experience and to actually um, live our lives. You know, most of you are here because you don't want to sleepwalk through life, you want to um, experience it. Sometimes there's this uh, misconception that meditation is about escaping from life. <laughs> Most of us here know that's not true. <laughs> we come with ourselves. <laughs> um, and the great blessing of, of, of meditation is that it actually isn't about escaping our lives, it's about living them. So this connecting with our lives actually brings a, a deep sense of um, unity and connection with ourselves and with others, and a sense of wholeness, of completeness. It's, it's, it's a great blessing. On a very basic level, um, mindfulness spares us a lot of mental suffering. Uh, later um, in the week when we talk about working with thoughts and emotions, we'll see that these are ways that we get very... Um, entangled and we suffer a lot and mindfulness gives us this hope and um, possibility of actually as sparing ourselves <laughs> that suffering by being aware of when we're getting entangled in thoughts and being aware of when we're sinking and getting lost in emotions and being able to be with those experiences in a way that's balanced and in a way that doesn't cause us suffering so that's a big one, which we're going to be developing over the week, and we'll see how this blessing of mindfulness really gives us um, gives us a tool to be able to work with balance with the content of our mind so that we don't suffer. Another one of the um, blessings of uh, mindfulness on a very basic level is that it keeps, mindfulness keeps us from acting unskillfully and thereby spares us and others a lot of suffering. You know, if we're not aware, it's pretty much business as usual, you know? We get angry, we yell. you know, we, we don't always act skillfully in the world, but with mindfulness it gives us this little room, you know, when we can be aware of this little room to choose how we respond to situations. It helps us be more aware of our thoughts and actions that lead to, our thoughts and emotions that lead to actions that we later regret. It, so it gives us this breathing room, and it helps us keep this foundation of non-harming that Michelle mentioned yesterday. That's a foundation of practice. So that's another blessing that it that it um, helps us not act in ways that cause ourselves suffering. Another blessing of mindfulness is that it allows us to see the nature of reality, which I was talking about in the first place. Is the goal of this practice? We see what are known as the three characteristics. We see um, change, unsatisfactoriness, and no self. Those are three words that you'll hear about this week. But basically, we see that change is constant and that this has profound implications for our understanding of happiness. We have a kind of conventional idea that happiness is caused by um, making sure that we get enough pleasant experiences and not too many unpleasant ones. <laughs> and what we see when we understand this reality of change is that. Um, that we're in trouble if we, if we rely on the world to be a certain way to make us happy. That we're going to be disappointed. Which is the second of uh, the things. Change is number one, and unsatisfactoriness is number two. And we start to see how our suffering comes out of basically our reaction to what's happening to us. Our reaction to this ceaseless change. And, um, and, our, and our wanting things to be different than the way they are. That's a very short explanation of what we see. <laughs> we'll have longer explanations as the week goes on. But mindfulness is like great training for um, accepting things as they are, which is which is a, a, the way to peace. So mindfulness is this tool for for um, understanding life in a way that that brings us happiness. And the last. Um, blessing of mindfulness that I'm going to mention today is um, that um, not only is it a tool for us to free us from our own suffering but it's um, of great benefit for those around us <laughs> if we're suffering less we cause less suffering and if we're happier we spread more happiness around so our, our, our practice has benefits um, not only for those, that, you know our dear ones and, that are close to us but for everybody that we come in contact with so our own practice, our own efforts to free our minds is, a, is really a gift that we offer the world. And you are here um, practicing that gift. The last thing I'd like to do is read um, something, oh, I don't think I can pronounce this, <laughs> something from the Bodhicaryavatara. It's uh, called The Miracle of Awakening by Shanti Deva. As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by light. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Just sit for a moment. Please feel invited to this feast of joy.